Welcome to Montgomery Talks, our regular podcast on local issues. And uh, our guest today is uh, Andrea Chambly, who comes to us for two reasons. One, her husband is John McNamara, who was a victim at a shooting at the Annapolis Capitol on June 28, 2018, that killed four other Capitol employees. And two, uh, Chambly has finished a book uh, McNamara started, The Capital of Base- uh, Basketball. It chronicles DC's rich history with the sport. Thank you, Andrew, for being with us today. Thank you for helping me tell John's story. So let's talk about the book. Um, John first started re- researching it how long ago? Well, I think he was writing it in his head when he went to his first high school game when he was 14 years old. He uh, talks a little bit about that in his foreword. Um, he realized he was an arm's length away from uh, future NBA players for just a few dollars. And he was impressed with the athleticism. And uh, and I think it was the Archbishop Carroll Lions playing his St. John's team. So Bob Dwyer of the Lions against Joe Gallagher of St. John's. Um, between the two of them, they have uh, an impressive uh, number of state championships and consecutive wins. So um, when Bob Dwyer died in 2007, he was lamenting the fact that um, he didn't get to interview him for that book in his head. And I encouraged him to get started now because there are still people who can talk about Bob Dwyer and his impact on the whole community. And, uh, and he should get started. So he started in 2007, and he was on the brink of finishing it when he died. Okay. Um, it's sat as notes, though, in your, in, in your home for all those years, correct? Or was there actually a manuscript? Uh, there was a manuscript. Um, he didn't like for me to read his writing until he was finished. And he was a paper and pen kind of guy, but he had started writing and he had um, put his manuscript on computer files, on Word files, and he asked me to help him back them up. Um, So I had uh, done that so I knew where the backup files were. And um, he had covered um, from the turn of the century to 1998. And he wanted to go all the way to 2000 when Coach Morgan Wooten of DeMatha was inducted into the Hall of Fame. So uh, David Elfin, a local sports writer who's covered sports for 30 years, um, took the boxes home with him and finished the last two years, proofread the whole thing. And um, while he did that, I worked on the first chapter, which John had outlined and highlighted what he wanted to do. And I, I really just had to assemble that from his notes and then the quotes he wanted to use. And uh, we put it together the two of us. Oh. And when did you decide to complete it? Well, because he liked writing in solitude, I, I didn't usually go into his den at all when he was working every night after work. Um, I did bring him dinner in his office, but I generally left him to write in there and respected his quiet. Um, so I avoided that room for weeks after he died, but I had to put the urn somewhere. So I went in there to put the urn on his bookcase, and I saw three file boxes of, uh, of files, and I saw that they were in order by year and by school and by player. Uh, there was one box full of microfiche copies, 
and I realized I had to go find those backed up Word files and see how far he had really gotten. And it was bittersweet to find out he was close enough to being finished where I thought I could do it, but far enough away so that he would never see the finished product. And it must have taken what, about a year, I guess, to, to finish it? It took about a year um, because the biggest job was one of his files was photos. And I don't know if your uh, listeners on the camera can see, but he had 150 photos, 170 photos in this file. And um, they, they were kind of like this one, just a player in his uniform at a game. So John knew who this was. Um, he knew it was a Coalfield house. He knew it was during the state championship and he knew how many points this kid made in the game. But I didn't know any of that. So um, I took this folder with me wherever I went for about two months and asked people, who's that? And who, who's these? Uh, James Brown is in here, the CBS announcer. Um, I didn't recognize him as a 17 year old kid. Um, or 16 maybe, but uh, eventually I find out, found out who everybody was. And, um, oh, so this is Fairmont Heights, Jerome McDaniels at Coalfield House. So I wrote the notes on the side when I would catch people at games or wherever I could find them. And I did that for all the pictures that are in this book, about 175 pictures. Oh my gosh. Um, that, was the, that was the hard part, but um, and then finding the publisher, I was lucky to find Georgetown. Um, they wanted to publish books about D.C. history, and this is great for that goal for them. Right. And now I'm letting people know that these remarkable stories are available. Um, somewhere I heard that you were worried about the first sentence. Oh, <laughs> and, yes. And so I was drawn to, I, I got to check the first sentence, and... This is really good prose. I mean, uh, it's hard to imagine a summer in Washington, D.C. with sunny days and muggy nights that aren't pierced with the thumps and grunts of dozens of basketballs and hundreds of players in pickup games, pounding out their frustrations and dreams on hot asphalt or in pungent gymnasiums at Turkey Thicket, Candy Cane City, Kelly Miller Junior High, or Sligo Creek. John took me to all those places. And that was all I could think about when I was there, that I was watching people dream on the basketball court. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, and I, I did a quick check, and, it, and I know it's grown since, since I checked uh, yesterday. Uh, you've been interviewed um, um, dozens of times for this book. Um, how has that made you feel? Well, I'm really grateful for the chance to talk about how John lived instead of just how he died. Um, but I'm ha so I'm happy for the chance to do that and then I, I go home and I'm sad again. So it's a, it's a roller coaster. Um, but overall I'd say I'm grateful mm -hmm. that, um, that I can talk about John's infectious passion for basketball. Um, you had an event, I think it was just this past Sunday, at Politics and Prose. Yes. Um, it was a big turnout, and, and I read your book sold out. Um, 
It doesn't yes. usually happen at book signings, as far as I understand. With the few people I know have had, but it's like <laughs> they're still coming home with boxes of books. Yes, we didn't have that problem. People who love John are coming out, and, and I hope people who look at the sentences in it are, are uh, excited about reading it. Um, yes, uh, I think there are algorithms that tell, the, you know, computers that tell people how many books to order, and an academic press with a local topic um, don't um, indicate a lot of sales, but this is so much more than a local topic. This this book covers civil rights heroes and um, and people who uh, succeeded at business, people who are uh, choir directors of the Harlem Boys Choir, uh, people who tried out for baseball teams, um, the head of um, Chevy Chase Savings and Loan, B.F. Saul, is, is in here. So it's really a remarkable story of the history of an American city. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite anecdote from the, from the book? Well, um, a lot of people know about Elgin Baylor, and what they don't know is that he played a game against a man with one arm in high school called Gary Mays, the one-armed bandit. Mm-hmm. Gary Mays held him to 19 points and scored 12 points of his own. He tried out for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he was voted by the other players as the best player at the tryouts, but they didn't draft him. Um, and he never became the sports star that he was capable of being. Um, so uh, he, I think he had a a bittersweet response to that. Mm-hmm. On a happier note, there's a, a doctor from Howard University named E.B. Henderson who traveled to Springfield, Massachusetts to talk to uh, Dr. Naismith about this game. Well, the game that he saw was a nine-man passing-only game. And at the same time, another man went up, Maurice Joyce, who was a circus performer who wanted to stay in shape in January and February. And between Maurice Joyce and E.B. Henderson, they turned it into a five-man running game with the pugnacious defense you see in D.C. Um, and um, then uh, E.B. Henderson was so distressed at the segregation in the game that he was a prolific writer and civil rights activist. He wrote about 3,000 essays and letters to the editor and, and articles and he ended up founding the NAACP. So he's a civil rights hero and a sports hero, and I don't think people know enough about him. So that's just a few that I have time for today, but there's a whole lot of remarkable people in this book. Um, You and John both attended the University of Maryland. Yes. Um, You grew up in Howard County? I did. The caliber of basketball isn't quite as demanding there (laughs) as it is in the city and around. And the two of you lived in Silver Spring. Yes. You're both huge sports fans. Um, you're a lawyer now, but you once were a journalist, correct? Yes, I covered high school sports for my county paper in Howard County. And I was interested in covering sports for Maryland, but the team was the teams were very good, and I was just a freshman, and they weren't going to let me cover the teams. Um, I did cover them for the yearbook that year. But I had my eye on law school all the time, um, and uh, and I wanted to be 
a, a lawyer from as long as I can remember. So we got married my second year in law school, and he put up with that last year of law school and the bar exam. Um, I wanted to turn to, um, unfortunately, the sadder turn of, of, of why you're here. Um, you've been uh, a man by the name of Jared Ramos has um, pled guilty to being the one who committed the killings. I don't know if there's any doubt that he did it, but um, it's but, on film. So. And um, the only thing left is for he's pled not guilty by reason of insanity. And I guess there's a whole new proceeding that's going to start on that. Yes, we just got a date minutes before I came in here of um, March 9th. March 9th. That, that trial will start to determine whether he's criminally responsible for his actions. And he will have to make that decision, or a jury will make that decision, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, you've been, to, have you been through there throughout the entire proceedings? Um, I've been to two proceedings. The latest one was a reading of the evidence against him in, in gruesome detail. It took about 90 minutes to read the evidence against him. It included a description of what is on video of how each person died. It was pretty awful to sit through. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess through your husband, did, you knew the other victims? No, I didn't. Um, like my husband and I, um, Annapolis isn't particularly affordable for journalists. <laughs> and a lot of them lived outside of Annapolis. Mm -hmm. um, some toward Baltimore, some in our direction, um, and some toward the bridge, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. So. Um, they didn't have many chances to socialize together. And since John covered sports, he was working on nights and weekends. And say the city editor would be covering uh, meetings that go on usually during the day. So mm -hmm. um, although they, um, they understood each other and they worked well together in the office, they didn't overlap as much as other coworkers might. Um. What do you think should happen to Ramos? Well, there's two answers to that. One is I think I should pull his heart out with my bare hands and shove it down his throat. But I don't want to live in a society that would let me do that. I want to live in a society that gives him a full, fair trial. And I'm happy that that's what he's getting. Even with this delay, I want him to have a full, fair trial with a jury who can make a decision on his criminal responsibility. I guess that's the lawyer and me talking. <laughs> well, what's the you and you talking? Um, if... If I had to choose, I would choose the full, fair trial for him. That's the kind of country I want to live in, where, where he gets his shot at justice and can tell his story, and his peers can decide his fate. Mm -hmm. um, do you think there any, well, what do you think could have been done to prevent the shootings? Anything? 
Um, yes, I think the shooting was preventable. I think most shootings are preventable. Um, just as one example, I have been lobbying our supposedly very blue democratic state because we permit gun sales to be made without checking the disqualified persons list. So it's possible in Maryland to buy a rifle or shotgun when you're on a disqualified list. And I think that possibility should be closed. This person was known to be dangerous. He had a criminal history. He had terrorized uh, a woman in Annapolis so much that she moved out of her hometown. She terrorized her lawyer so that he had to get a security system and keep a bat under his bed and was afraid for his own children. He should never have been able to acquire or keep a gun. Um, so we need to close the background check loophole so that everyone who sells a gun has to check the list that already exists. It's online. It's easy to check. And then there are other people who, uh, whose lives are lost even more often than mass shootings. There's children who come across an unsecured gun, and that needs to stop. All guns should be secured so that children can't get them. And there's our veterans and other people who, in a moment of distress, commit suicide. Um, they should not be able to have such unfettered access to guns. There was a police officer who committed suicide in Silver Spring right. just a, f a few, oh, just a week or so ago. So um, I'd like to reduce these preventable deaths of children and veterans and first responders and, and prevent guns from getting in the hands of people who want to conduct mass shootings. You, have you been approached by the folks who want to end gun violence to be a spokesperson or at least testify? Well, a couple of days after John died, I got a call from Moms Demand Action who asked what they can do for me. They asked, what do I need? And I took them up on that. They were really gracious. I didn't know what I needed at that point, but they knew. There were a lot of survivors in that group. But as time went on, I knew what I needed was to do something. I'm committed to doing something. I'm committing to telling John's story, to letting people know about this loophole that you would never guess still exists, um, and letting them know that the politicians that are stopping us from making the changes need to change their mind or they need to change their job. I've also been approached by the people who disagree with me they have my address, they posted it on their Facebook page, and within three hours, someone was trying to break into my house. They've put me on mailing lists for uh, materials that mean I get pictures of men pointing guns in my direction, in my mailbox, and I've had to fight to get my name off those lists. But I think they ex if they expect me to back down and they have another thing coming. Um, what would you say to them if they were in the room right now? Well, one day they followed me to my car. They like to follow people with their cameras on and agitate them until they can't take it anymore and they yell at them. And then they post 
the person yelling at them. They never post what they did to deserve it. So they were following me to my car and getting really close behind me. And I just turned around and I said, what do you think you're going to do to me? Are you going to kill my family? Because you're too late. And they kind of slinked away. And I never saw that video go on their web page. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I've, I've tried to talk to them. And I've, um, I'm on the gun violence task force in Anne Arundel County. And I did call one gentleman who had been writing a lot of letters to our task force just to let him know that I read them. And I actually found a good idea in there. And I'm going to put it in my report. And I asked him, you know, well, don't you want to prevent suicide? Don't you want to prevent children from finding unsecured guns? And he said, of course. And, and I said, you know, we're on the same page. These, these histrionics that I'm going to knock on people's doors until I find people with guns and take them away, that's not going to happen. I don't want that to happen. I don't think I could make it happen if I wanted it to happen. And... Um, and I tried to assure him that all I want to do is prevent the preventable. Um, so I think we reached an understanding one-on-one -on -one that we might not have reached any other way. But, but we're demonized so much in their materials about how we're gun confiscators that it's hard to overcome that perception. It's interesting that one-on-one -on -one you're able to find common ground. Um, so it, it seems as though that's the answer, just do a lot more one-on-one. -on -one. Well, I was lucky that he was even willing to listen to me. A lot of times um, people come to the same hearings that I'm in, and they, they sign up as a group. Each individual member will sign up to speak, and they'll just insist that all we want to do is confiscate their guns. Um, I mean, this person was engaged and willing to participate. I, I don't think the people who are insisting that I want to spend the rest of my life knocking on strangers' doors, asking them if they'll give me their gun, <laughs> is something I'm interested in doing. Right. So um, are you planning on testifying in the upcoming uh, legislature? Yes, I am. I plan on finding that senator who hid the bill until it was too late to vote on it and tell him I know what he did. Tell him if he doesn't like that bill, he can vote against it, but he shouldn't be hiding it. Okay. Um, so what's next, though, for you? I mean, you, you've been through a lot. You've been through what a lot of people just wouldn't even be able to fathom, and yet you're still you're still showing up. You're still selling your your husband's book. You're still telling people about what a, what a wonderful person he was. Um, I I want people to know what a devoted person he was. He would get up at six thirty in the morning and scrape the ice off my car on his days off. He would lug home the twelve pack of Diet Snapple. I think it's the heaviest thing in the grocery store. He'd make my coffee, even though he never drank it. I always said I was behind in showing him 
all these similar gestures of kindness. And he said, don't worry about it. But now I have to make sure this book is out and everybody who would want to read it should read it because that's the only way I can catch up to him now. I can't catch up to him any other way. And I want to make sure nobody goes through this again. Whatever happens in that trial, there's no justice for John. There's no justice for me. There's only justice for the next family who might not have to do this if we have background checks and gun locks and And I, I need for that to happen. I need to know that it stops. Okay. Thank you very, very much, Michelle. I appreciate you coming in to speak with us. This has been Montgomery Talks. Our, our, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, our engineer today was uh, Carolyn Raskaskis. I'm Doug Tolman. Please join us next time.